Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kehud Malkuto Le'olam Va'ed Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, Mishpacha. Welcome to the Daily Audio Torah. I'm Laura Densmore, your host, and I'm so glad you're joining in with me today. Today is Tuesday, May 30th. In Revelation 1.8, Yeshua says of himself, I am the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and Tav, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Did you know that if you read Genesis 1.1 in Hebrew, there is an Aleph Tav right smack dab in the middle of that verse? Truly Yeshua, the Aleph Tav, is there in the beginning and the end. So, If you were reading your Bible in Hebrew, whenever you come across Aleph Tav, this is a direct reference to Yeshua. The acronym for Daily Audio Torah is D-A-T. In Hebrew, that is Dalit Aleph Tav. When you unpack that in the ancient Hebrew picture language, what it means is this. Doorway to the Aleph Tav. Daily Audio Torah is your doorway to the Aleph Tav, your doorway to Yeshua. Are you being blessed by this ministry? Please consider supporting Daily Audio Torah. You can make a one-time or a recurring donation by going to dailyaudiotorah.com and then click on the Give pick on the navigation menu. You can then make a secure online donation there. Thank you for your prayers and thank you for your support. Now let's continue our journey through the entire Bible in one year. This week we are reading from the New Living Translation for the Hebrew Scriptures and for the Brit Hadashah. Today we continue the Torah portion, Naso, and it means elevate. Numbers 5, 16-31 The priest will then present her to stand trial before the Lord. He must take some holy water in a clay jar and pour into it dust he has taken from the tabernacle floor. When the priest has presented the woman before the Lord, he must unbind her hair and place in her hands the offering of proof, the jealousy offering to determine whether her husband's suspicions are justified. The priest will stand before her holding the jar of bitter water that brings a curse to those who are guilty. The priest will then put the woman under oath and say to her, If no other man has had sex with you, and you have not gone astray and defiled yourself while under your husband's authority, may you be immune from the effects of this bitter water that brings on the curse. But if you have gone astray by being unfaithful to your husband, and have defiled yourself by having sex with another man, At this point, the priest must put the woman under oath by saying, May the people know that the Lord's curse is upon you when he makes you infertile, causing your womb to shrivel and your abdomen to swell. 
Now may this water that brings the curse enter your body and cause your abdomen to swell and your womb to shrivel. And the woman will be required to say, Yes, let it be so. And the priest will write these curses on a piece of leather and wash them off into the bitter water. He will make the woman drink the bitter water that brings on the curse. When the water enters her body, it will cause bitter suffering if she is guilty. The priest will take the jealousy offering from the woman's hand, lift it up before the Lord, and carry it to the altar. He will take a handful of the flour as a token portion and burn it on the altar, and he will require the woman to drink the water. If she has defiled herself by being unfaithful to her husband, the water that brings on the curse will cause bitter suffering. Her abdomen will swell and her womb will shrink, and her name will become a curse among her people. But if she has not defiled herself and is pure, then she will be unharmed and will still be able to have children. This is the ritual law for dealing with suspicion. If a woman goes astray and defiles herself while under her husband's authority, or if a man becomes jealous and is suspicious that his wife has been unfaithful, the husband must present his wife before the Lord, and the priest will apply this entire ritual law to her. The husband will be innocent of any guilt in this matter, but his wife will be held accountable for her sin. 2 Samuel 15.23-16.23 Everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out toward the wilderness. Zadok and all the Levites also came along carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abiathar offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. Then the king instructed Zadok to take the Ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the Ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. The king also told Zadok the priest, Look, here is my plan. You and Abiathar should return quietly to the city with your son Ahimaaz and Abiathar's son Jonathan. I will stop at the shallows of the Jordan River and wait there for a report from you. So Zadok and Abiathar took the Ark of God back to the city and stayed there. David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. When someone told David that his advisor Ahithophel was now backing Absalom, David prayed, O Lord, let Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. When David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, where people worshipped God, Hushai the archite was waiting there for him. Hushai had torn his clothing and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. But David told him, If you go with me, you will only be a burden. Return to Jerusalem and tell Absalom, I will now be your advisor, O king, just as I was your father's advisor in the past. 
then you can frustrate and counter Ahithophel's advice. Zadok and Abiathar the priests will be there, tell them about the plans being made in the king's palace, and they will send their sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan to tell me what is going on. So David's friend Hushai returned to Jerusalem, getting there just as Absalom arrived. When David had gone a little beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, was waiting there for him. He had two donkeys loaded with two hundred loaves of bread, one hundred clusters of raisins, one hundred bunches of summer fruit, and a wineskin full of wine. What are these for? the king asked Ziba. Ziba replied, The donkeys are for the king's people to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat. The wine is for those who become exhausted in the wilderness. And where is Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson? The king asked him. He stayed in Jerusalem, Ziba replied. He said, Today I will get back the kingdom of my grandfather Saul. In that case, the king told Ziba, I give you everything Mephibosheth owns. I bow before you, Ziba replied. May I always be pleasing to you, my lord the king. As King David came to Bahurim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king, Abishai, son of Zariah, demanded? Let me go over and cut off his head. No, the king said. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zariah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, My own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. So David and his men continued down the road, and Shimei kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David. The king and all who were with him grew weary along the way, so they rested when they reached the Jordan River. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the army of Israel arrived at Jerusalem, accompanied by Ahithophel. When David's friend Hushai the archite arrived, he went immediately to see Absalom. Long live the king, he exclaimed. Long live the king. Is this the way you treat your friend David? Absalom asked him. Why aren't you with him? I'm here because I belong to the man who was chosen by the Lord and by all the men of Israel, Hushai replied. And anyway, why shouldn't I serve you? Just as I was your father's advisor, now I will be your advisor. When Absalom turned to Ahithophel and asked him, What should I do next? Ahithophel told him, Go and sleep with your father's concubines, for he has left them here to look after the palace. Then all Israel will know that you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation, and they will throw their support to you. So they set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it, and Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. 
Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. John 18.25-19.22 Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Yeshua's trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Yeshua's prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Yeshua to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? he asked him. Yeshua replied, Is this your own question, or did others ask you to tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Yeshua answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, So you are a king? Yeshua responded, You say, I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Yeshua flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, King of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Yeshua came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and the temple guards began shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Yeshua back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Yeshua gave no reply. 
Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Yeshua said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Yeshua out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement, in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was now about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. The leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Yeshua over to them to be crucified. So they took Yeshua away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called the Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Yeshua between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Yeshua of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Yeshua was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected, and they said to Pilate, Change it from the King of the Jews to, He said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. Psalm 119, 113-128 I hate those with divided loyalties, but I love your instructions. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Get out of my life, you evil-minded people, for I intend to obey the commands of my God. Lord, sustain me as you have promised that I may live. Do not let my hope be crushed. Sustain me, and I will be rescued. Then I will meditate continually on your decrees. But you have rejected all who stray from your decrees. They are only fooling themselves. You skim off the wicked of the earth like scum. No wonder I love to obey your laws. I tremble in fear of you. I stand in awe of your regulations. Ion, don't leave me to the mercy of my enemies, for I have done what is just and right. Please guarantee a blessing for me. Don't let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes strain to see your rescue, to see the truth of your promise fulfilled. I am your servant. Deal with me in unfailing love, and teach me your decrees. Give discernment to me, your servant. Then I will understand your laws. Lord, it is time for you to act, for these evil people have violated your instructions. Truly, I love your commands more than gold, even the finest gold. Each of your commandments is right. That is why I hate every false way. Proverbs 16, 10 and 11
The king speaks with divine wisdom. He must never judge unfairly. The Lord demands accurate scales and balances. He sets the standards for fairness. Today I want to speak to you from 2 Samuel 15 and 16, and then we're going to jump into John chapter 18 and 19. And I want to zoom in on a character of God that is revealed to us through these scriptures. And that character or aspect, nature of God, is the sovereignty of God. The name El Elyon means the Most High. And David had a very deep understanding of the sovereignty of God, and it guided the behavior, the actions, and the decisions of his life. And how we see this is in um, this chapter that we read, as David is fleeing Jerusalem, as he leaves in shame and in disgrace, and his son Absalom has basically done a coup d'etat, has overthrown his own father, and is now going to assert himself as the king. David is fleeing, and as he leaves, there is someone who is taunting him. And let's just pick up the story in Second Samuel chapter 16 and in verse 5. And as David came to Bahurim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last, you will taste some of your own medicine, for you are a murderer. And then Abishai replies and said, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Now here is where we see David's understanding of the sovereignty of God. David replies in verse 10, No. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zariah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? And he went on to say, my own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. So what we see here is tremendous restraint. David refused to take matters into his own hands and to defend himself. He understood the sovereignty of God, and he threw himself into the hands of God and said, you know, if God sees that I'm being wronged, he's going to set things right. He is going to deal with this situation. But if God is punishing me because I was wrong, he's, he's falling totally into the hands of the Lord. And we saw that when he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba and how he killed Uriah when Nathan the prophet came to him. Again, he immediately, he said, I, yep, you got it. This is correct. I, I did those things and and I, I repent. He didn't try to hide or cover up or make excuses. So he understood the sovereignty of God. This is why he never lifted his hand against Saul to kill him. 
though he could have on several different occasions. He waited upon the Lord and allowed the Lord to deal with Saul. And in God's timing, Saul was taken out. He died in battle. And so we learn from looking at David's life that David really trusted the Lord and understood the sovereignty of God, that God's hand is intimately involved in every aspect of our life. He's the one who sets up and orchestrates circumstances in our life. And yes, the enemy is there. The enemy can cause people to throw flaming arrows and darts at us and to harm us, but ultimately God is in charge and in control. He is sovereign. He's the Most High. We see this same principle playing out from the New Testament in John chapter 18 and 19, where Yeshua now is going before Pilate and the people are are the religious leaders, not all of the Jews. The religious leaders wanted him to be executed, wanted him to be crucified. And so as he has this conversation with Pilate, let's just pick it up in John chapter 19, verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. Uh, Well, let me back it up to verse 7. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law, he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Yeshua back into the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Yeshua gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? And then Yeshua said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. And again, here Yeshua is revealing to us the sovereignty of God that God is the one who has allowed him to be handed over to the authorities. And and God is the one who has granted power to Pilate to rule and to reign and to make these decisions of life and death. That that power, ultimately, it came from God. God is sovereign. He is on the throne. Nothing happens to us by accident or by chance. He is the ruler And he is the one who orchestrates all of our circumstances of life. And so we can take great comfort in that, to know that things aren't happening randomly or by chance or by accident, that God has a master plan and he's moving us forward into the path and into the direction that he has for each and every one of us, that his plan prevails and we should not resist it but that as he orchestrates circumstances, we go along with his flow. We go along with his path and his direction. So we must never forget, we must remember the incredible sacrifice that Yeshua made for us on that cross. All that he endured, the shame, the disgrace, the pain, those crown of thorns going into his head, the purple robe being put upon him, the scourging with a lead-tipped whip, the nails 
going into his hands and his feet. He did that out of incredible, extreme, extravagant, extraordinary love for you and for me. We must never forget. It is good to remember often Yeshua and all that he did for us when he laid down his life for his sheep, for his people. I'd like to close and conclude with a beautiful hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, sung by Keith and Kristen Yeti. Enjoy. Oh, my.
Ivrekka Adonai Vishmarekka Yaya Adonai Vikuneka Isa Adonai Anav Ileka Vayaseleka Leka Aaronic Blessing from Numbers chapter 6, 24-26 Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.